Welcome to episode 23 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 25th, 26th and 27th of April 2023. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Focusing on the news now, and the British Security Industry Association is currently in the process of launching and promoting a major national campaign that aims to increase the profile and awareness of the crucial work that security officers transact on a 24-7, 365 basis in order to protect people, property and places. The new campaign is also about highlighting how a career in the industry, and indeed the provision of professional security as a service, carries a diverse range of benefits. The prime objectives of the new People, Property, Places, Professionally Protected campaign, which itself builds on the hidden work Force Perceptions campaign initiated back in 2020 are to raise awareness of security officers and their work, improve retention and recruitment by highlighting the myriad benefits of the sector, and also promote the benefits of purchasing professional security services. Security officers don't just do a job for their company and its clients. Rather, they are highly trained and compassionate individuals with great responsibility for keeping people, property and places professionally protected. Due recognition of this vital work, however, still remains relatively under the radar, while the general perception of security service providers in both the business sector and the public consciousness is believed to be somewhat unclear and potentially undervalued. The BSIA's overriding goal then is to raise the profile of and also establish a positive identity for this vital element of the security business sector. Three markets are going to be targeted by the new campaign, which officially launches on International Security Officers Day in late July. The first is business to consumer. Here, the focus is very much on increasing the profile and awareness of the crucial work security officers conduct on a daily basis. The second area of focus is business to recruitment. This centres on improving recruitment and staff retention by highlighting the career opportunities and benefits available within the professional security sector. Finally, there's business to business. This concentrates on promoting the benefits of purchasing professional security services among the end-user community. The campaign will look in great detail at several areas, among them training. Here, there will be a keen focus on the much-discussed protect duty plans put forward by the government. In terms of reputation, there's an overriding need to dispel old myths about the role of the professional security officer. Another area for attention is corporate social responsibility. Many companies are dedicated to not only improving their business to fit in with modern trends, but also provide valuable support within their communities and beyond. Messaging for the new campaign is very much about security being a career of choice that's open to anyone from any background, ethnicity, sexuality and age group. Security officers are committed to the cause, take great pride in their work and have numerous opportunities to progress in their chosen career. Working with its members and the wider security industry, the BSIA will target the identified markets through a sustained media campaign, using case studies of existing and new projects that underline the industry's commitment to training, recruitment and retention, the living wage, the building with a strong reputation, equality, diversity and inclusion, corporate social responsibility, client satisfaction, the use of technology and the strengthening of partnerships. The campaign is going to be publicised across national and regional media, as well as vertical and campaign-relevant media. For its part, Security Matters magazine is fully supportive of the BSI's latest campaign to endorse and promote the vital work of security officers and security companies. The Information Commissioner's Office has fined Clearview AI the substantial sum of £7.5 million for using images of people in the UK and elsewhere that were collected from the internet and social media to create a global online database that could be used for facial recognition. The ICO has also issued an enforcement notice ordering the company to stop obtaining and using the personal data of UK residents publicly available on the internet and delete the data of UK residents from its systems. 
The ICO's action follows on from a joint investigation conducted alongside the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and which focused on Clearview AI's use of people's images, data scraping from the internet and the use of biometric data for facial recognition. In order to create an online database, Clearview AI has collected upwards of 20 billion images of people's faces and data from publicly available information on the internet and social media platforms all over the world. Individuals were not informed that their images were being collected or used in this way. The company provides a service that allows customers including the police service, to upload an image of a person to the company's app, which is then checked for a match against all of the images held on the database. The app then provides a list of images with similar characteristics to the photograph provided by the customer, with a link to the websites from where those images originated. Given the high number of internet and social media users here in the UK, Clearview AI's database is likely to include a substantial amount of data from UK residents, which has been gathered without their knowledge. Although Clearview AI no longer offers its services to UK organisations, the company has customers in other countries. That being so, the organisation is still using the personal data of UK residents. John Edwards, the UK's Information Commissioner, has stated, Clearview AI has collected multiple images of people all over the world, including in the UK, from a variety of websites and social media platforms, thereby creating a database holding more than 20 billion images. The company not only enables identification of these people, but effectively monitors their behaviour and offers it as a commercial service. That's unacceptable. This is why we've acted to protect people in the UK by both fining the company and issuing an enforcement notice. Edwards continued, people expect that their personal information will be respected, regardless of where in the world their data is being used. That's why global companies need international enforcement. Working with colleagues around the world has helped us to take this action and protect people from such intrusive activity. Further, Edwards noted, this international cooperation is essential to protect people's privacy rights in 2022. That means working with regulators in other countries, as we did in this case with our Australian colleagues. It also means working with regulators across Europe. The ICO found that Clearview AI breached UK data protection laws by failing to use the information of people in the UK in a way that's fair and transparent, given that individuals are not made aware of or would not reasonably expect their personal data being used in this way. The company also failed to have a lawful reason for collecting people's information and to have a process in place to stop the data being retained indefinitely. Further, Clearview AI failed to meet the higher data protection standards required for biometric data. This is classed as special category data under the General Data Protection Regulation and indeed the UK's own data protection rules. The joint investigation was conducted in accordance with the Australian Privacy Act and the UK Data Protection Act 2018. The investigation was also carried out under the Global Privacy Assembly's Global Cross-Border Enforcement Cooperation Arrangement, as well as the MOU signed between the ICO and the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. Our first guest this time around appeared on Episode 2 of the Security Matters podcast back in May 2020. A chartered security professional, Rick Mountainfield has recently concluded a hugely successful five-year tenure as CEO of the Security Institute and moved to join the Optimal Risk Group. During an exclusive exit interview with Security Matters, Rick focuses his attentions on many key areas. Among them, the ongoing push for chartered status for the Institute, the likely roadmap for the organisation, and also where the security industry needs to be in terms of mandated CPD. Rick outlines his views on the core skills he believes will be necessary when it comes to the security manager of tomorrow. Importantly, Rick also details the greatest achievements realised by the organisation and indeed himself during his time as CEO of the Institute, and then looks ahead to his new role as a director with the Optimal Risk Group. What were your key goals when you first joined the Institute? I wanted the Institute to represent what I felt it should be. Um, which was working hard to be um, a modern organization that was more diverse and representative. And I don't think it necessarily reflected that. And I'd been a member for seven years. So I 
I hold a very average perspective. I was a very average member for seven years. You know, I, I went to things I wanted to go to. I valued the things that were important to me. And I engaged with the things that, you know, I wanted to engage with. I think there was there was a lot more that could have been done that I would have been interested in if, I'd, if there'd, there'd have been more focus on it. So what I did was try and uh, make it appealing to more people, uh, to a wider audience of, of diversity and not just sense of the classic EDI, but more diverse in terms of job roles, areas of sectors of the industry uh, at all levels, top to bottom, not just management to senior management in corporate security, which is kind of where it was focused. So, yeah, broadening the horizon was the main aim and make it more appealing. What do you think has been the Institute's greatest achievements during your tenure as CEO, would you say? The thought leadership that's generated, you know, the the, the amount of, of uh, expertise we have within the membership, the the success is, is the this idea of the, you know, this tribal movement of, of people that all want the same thing. It's uh, it's about professional standards and being recognised for what you bring, not just to your work, but to the to the wider industry as well. And I think the the institute has become that platform. Success is in knowing what its identity is now. You know, a lot of the membership bodies are they at the time they, they didn't know where did we fit. We work for our members, but are we a trade body? Are we a professional body? Are we a think tank? Are we a club? It's it's hard to define. And I think um, what we've our biggest success is we we are clearly a professional membership body now with a lot of people that value being in it and they they value being in it because they get the chance to help other people as much as they do receive information it's a very reciprocal and altruistic mindset within the membership and what do you feel have been your your most important personal achievements at the institute in your tenure as ceo rick streamlining the business you know the operations management so we've grown the the headquarters team has grown from three to 14 in five years yeah and I, you know and I'll and I'll have my hat on this I, I mean I but the budget I'm leaving for my successor is a is a five-year plan I mean the, obviously the next year is the primary but based on um, growth current growth um, the five-year plan is in another five will be 24 employees because that's where we're going to see at the current rate of growth, we need to try and stay ahead of the um, the necessities, the needs of the members, the needs of industry and the government security profession, and you know the the professionalisation of our industry um, requires more events, more training, more that it, it, with every increase in engagement activity and staff that I have that deliver more content means I need a bigger HR department, a bigger finance department, a bigger registrar's department that will cope with increased membership applications, um, more complexity, a bigger uh, executive. You know, we, we there's just me now, but we've got Angie as a COO and we'll have a training and development executive soon as well. So there's, you know, it's it's keeping the operations management ahead of the the need of the business you know and and anticipating the growth so that we're never struggling to keep up we're just always one step ahead but that takes a little bit of risk in in the business and i think one of the the biggest successes we've had is we've been able to um, make some good assumptions based on risk and growth 
and and business to to stay one step ahead of the needs of of our members. Do you leave the role of CEO with any regrets? Is there perhaps any unfinished business you would like to have addressed, but perhaps you didn't have time to do so? Regrets? No, I think I think we've uh, the team here has overachieved on what I anticipated. I mean, when I came into this job, it was to polish up what I already valued. You know, rebranding, mm. new website, digitally transform the institute's offering to to see us into the future. That's that's an achievement mm. that was accelerated by lockdowns because that's what we had to do. And we're in a far more resilient place now. I don't think I have <clears throat> any regrets, um, but I do think that the timing is is right for me now to go because my job is splitting into two people. Uh, a chief operations officer is going to run the business. That's Angie Vernon Lawson. He's primarily responsible for the staff now. And the new chief executive is going to come in not having the same tie to the staff that I have. For me to stay in the role now, I would I would get under Angie's feet in the way she wants to run the staff because I have an invested interest in their development and growth. Because I selected all bar the two that are left, you know, Paula and, and Helen, are the only two members of staff that I inherited. The rest I've recruited personally to fit yeah culture of the institute of the culture of the office that we have now so but yeah to answer your question regrets I can't I don't generally regret anything Brian it's not something I I have uh, in my life I don't think I've had any regrets I I roll with the with what comes and and I'm very much of a mindset of what's meant to be will be and if you just trust that the you know the universe is is unfolding as it should you just, you know, you, you pick up on what's available and you make the most of the opportunities that come along. That's that's really the way I live my life, not just this job. What, what would your key message be for the, for the next CEO, thinking about the comments you just made there? What would your key message to them be? Lean into the staff and lean into the, the members. You know, I, I listened to a, a podcast on the way up to HQ this morning, Stephen Bartlett's Diary of a CEO, and he's interviewing Karen Brady. You know, and she, you know, she, she reverberates a a, um, a common sort of statement of you just surround yourself with people better than you. The Institute is full of people that are better than me. Uh, and so you just you just have to engage them to give their time for the benefit of others. And, and I've never asked somebody to to do something, a presentation to develop, develop some training to give their opinion on a, a survey no one's ever said to me no i haven't got time for that sorry so literally my success in the institute is is being able to ask other people to do stuff and then be willing to do it so it's um, again this comes back to the, the 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 book tribes by seth godin is is almost a mini bible for me in in how to run a membership body how far away do you believe chartered status is for the Security Institute? Well, it's quite, it's quite common. Well, I think we would have probably applied already had it not been um, due, due to COVID. Uh, our strategy from 2017 was to apply by the end of 2021. Okay. If you take out, if you take two years out of the equation uh, and put the same strategic aim to the back of 2023, uh, it'll definitely happen by then. I would imagine. The the other the other key thing was. Um, Picking up um, the Princess Royal as our royal patron is is another, um, you know, a, a Goliath of a, an ally when it comes to the Privy Council. And, and the, you know, the members of the House of Lords that we have as patrons, 
getting them fully up to speed with why it's important to have the institute in our industry um, means that we have bigger supporters in the Privy Council, uh, which means that, you know, when you finally throw all your cards on the table, you will have a better shot because you are a known quantity and you will have people in the room ready to fight for you and explain why it's a valuable thing to have a professional body raising standards for societal safety and security. That's what we're we're gearing towards. It's other, it's another reason why I think it's it's time to move now because once that's the the implementation of that application going through the process, that's a year, two years, and then the formative years of the chartered institute are going to need dedication as well. So we're talking about another five year rotation and you know i that would that would take me to a 10-year point now i'm a chartered security professional that is doing a lot of cpd and you know helping a lot of people but not actually practicing what i preach and that's something i've really missed so timing's good for that what do you think the ongoing roadmap will look like or should look like for the institute in say the immediate immediate future Rick? I think um, the onboarding of Angie Vernon Lawson uh, as a COO gives us a capability to create um, learning and development beyond my capacity. It was never my bag. You know, training is not my bag. It is definitely Angie's bag. Visualising where training and thought leadership could go is 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 really important. I think it's the it's the one aspect of a of a professional body that I I don't think we have done enough with so i suppose if there's a regret that might be it but it's not it, not that it was my focus it just is now with a new capability um and you know a new expert in the uh, executive you've got a new capability and and every business needs a you know a visionary and implementers and whilst you know i've been the visionary for the way the institute's grown the implementers are my staff and the board uh, have, have been visionaries and the uh, members have been the implementers. Angie will be the visionary towards where training and development can go. Uh, so that's really exciting development, I think, uh, will will add um, a lot of benefit for the industry. No, I think the I mean, the key underlying thing that the pleasure for me of, of leading an organisation like this is, is that I get to meet and work with, you know, a, a million brilliant people just genuinely kind altruistic people who value our industry and i say that because you know people come into our industry not not to make a lot of money they do it because it's a kind of a service same as police become police and nurses and teachers and military people you know they do it because they they have a, a sense of duty and i think our industry is full of people like that and i and I've witnessed a lot of altruism within the sector. So from from every different discipline, whether it be engineering or cyber or the technology side, right the way through to the front line, people are willing to give their time asking for nothing, um, just knowing that it's it will help somebody, one person, if not a hundred people. And I think that's really satisfying to uh, to see that work and then see the people benefit from that giving. That's the that's the best part of this job. So what what changes do you believe are still necessary for the industry in general, Rick, say across the next next year or so, next couple of years, maybe? I think there's um, it's the same. It's the same things that SRI research were talking about in 2017. We're very good at talking to ourselves. Yes. Inward facing. We're not influencing outwards. And my 
my successor will have a um, much more time to spend promoting the the uh, disciplines of security the art of security the science of security to different business sectors finance education insurance fast-paced consumer goods you know if we're barking about the the benefits of security and how it can add value to the bottom line of a business somebody that is not selling anything needs to be the person to lead that and whilst i've i have had some wins in different sectors i'm also running the business of the institute now somebody else the coo will do that the new chief executive will be a much greater influence in an external focus uh, from our sector and and hopefully we'll drag other people along on that journey as well so that other key players you know in the industry who have influence will be able to 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 assist in in changing the narrative that security is a a low skilled work um and 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 a misunderstanding and misrepresentation of of all the things that security brings to to society without scaring the bejesus out of people which we don't want to do where do you personally think we need to get to in terms of mandated CPD for our profession? Well, I think this this requires us to have a professional body. Um, you know, the, the ironic fact that we have a cyber uh, council, cyber security council, before we have a security council is, you know, back to front. Could have been a security council with a cyber as part of security. You know, there's engineering and defensive architecture is taken care of by the engineering council. Um, but the, the security practices, you know, in private sector and, and corporates, just it's not regulated the way the front line is regulated, obviously. But the standards of consultants and corporate security management and all the other disciplines are fairly voluntary. There is it's all carrot, no stick. If you are a doctor and you are not registered with, you know, a council and you're not doing CPD, then you get struck off. If you give bad advice to somebody about their treatment and they end up hurt or, or they die, you will be struck off and prosecuted. But we don't get that in security. And I think that the only way we will have that is to have a security council, but that's for government to set up. And I, I think that the, the sad fact is this all relates back to the perception of security and the misunderstanding of what security as a career is people have to recognize that it's a an important career in the way that engineering is and the medical profession is and you know an accountancy is essential if security is not viewed in the same way then there's no imperative or or aspiration to to create such a thing as a as a security council everybody sees cyber security that way because it's a high threat big impacts but not so not so much security in its physical or personnel form yeah. So I think um, in, if there was a if there was a domino effect, you know, a, a a chartered institute for protective security, for argument's sake, um, because we already have a cyber security council, so you can't have two chartered bodies in the same space. Um, we'll have a greater voice. Uh, we'll be able to lobby harder with bigger uh, patrons, bigger um, backers have a, a bigger voice then you have a greater impact and and the way the world is going around organized crime and terrorism you know the bad side of things you know that that if that becomes more frequent then people are more open to the need for um, a security council whereas these days you know it happens infrequently and and when it does it's a it's a high impact but low likelihood in some cases mm. then it can easily be forgotten about 
uh, and we we favour forgetting about the impacts and just getting back to normality than than living in fear, which is quite right. And that's why I think the what I said earlier about not scaring the bejesus out of people is a is a double-edged sword, wouldn't it be? Um, it would be a different story if everybody was terrified, then security would be on the agenda. But we don't want that. We want public to go about their life without fear. So security will always be a whisper and we will deal with it uh, the way the police don't shout about what they're doing. They're just there, you know, but people recognise that, but they're not necessarily recognising security officers for the value that they bring to the environment of a shopping centre or a business improvement district or a corporation, you know, and their staff being happy and feeling secure is a is a feeling, not something you're necessarily conscious of. And um, so we have to maintain that status quo, but raise the the value uh, and recognition for the people that work in security. Then then we'll start to see changes. I think it's uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, not for the regulator to um, the regulator maintains the base standards, the minimum standards, but they are minimum standards. It's down to the individual, whether that's a corporate security manager or a security officer or a you know anybody that's visible to the public. They have a personal responsibility to be the best version of themselves, to be educated, to converse confidently, to present themselves in a smart fashion. Uh, and it takes you know, years to build a reputation and, and a minute to destroy. If there's a, an upward spiral to be had, it comes from being presented as a professional uh, group of people. And that's down to the individual presenting themselves professionally, conversing professionally, performing professionally. That will attract better people into the industry, better suited people to protecting society and businesses. Um, then I think businesses will start to recognise the value of having those efficient and smartly astute people protecting public places and businesses. And then they will pay appropriately. You know, the license link qualifications will make an impact from the SIA. It drives up the professional baseline. But it's really incumbent on everybody in the profession that, that is viewed by the public to, to present themselves as a smart and capable um, and responsible um, owner of safety and security for the area they influence. <coughs> Only when that happens will, will everything go up upward spiral. Do you think the security manager of tomorrow is going to have to be a different animal in terms of their background and core skills from what's gone before? And if so, why? Yeah, I think we obviously we, we all know we're, we're an industry of second career police and military, generally uh, middle aged men, which does bring sort of um, a good deal of leadership uh, management experience. But we are all uh, very similar and we all come to the same conclusions. And as, as Karen Brady said in the, the podcast I was listening to this morning, and we quite happily follow each other off a cliff. And that's the problem. The diversity uh, needs to change because a high functioning team needs to be challenged. Uh, information imp- improves with challenge in, in terms of uh, academia or, or policy and procedure. If you've got different perspectives about a problem and the mitigation, the wider the diversity, the wider the, the, the suggestions and the better and more innovative the solutions that you will realize. So I think what we're trying to do with our next generation security initiative is try and get more balance. There will always be a place for ex-military and police because, you know, in a crisis, you need somebody level headed and they're proven in that way in most respects. But the mitigation of, of those things happening requires 
a different resilience, you know, the, the business continuity planning so that people react in a certain way is 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 all about the thought leadership. It's about the planning, not the reaction. It's it's the anti-fragility uh, that Nassim Taleb talks about. You know, we have to we have to come out of attacks and yeah, any attack, not just terrorists, but cyber attacks or, or any kind of crime. We come as a business, you come out of it stronger than you were before, not just resilient, as in nothing changes when a, a disaster happens, but you learn from it and you become stronger because of it. And that's really the, uh, the theme of anti-fragility. And I think that's where the future of security needs to be. And that's, you know, it's good to see organisational resilience become a much greater offering to businesses these days because people are, are planning for the, the, the un, unforeseen to, so they can ride it out. Uh, and that, yeah, that just requires a, a greater degree of knowledge in resilience as well as the discipline of security you might be working in. I think the act is is what it is. I mean, it's just the it's a baseline. It gives us the tools. Um, the collaborative working with the police is is personality driven. It's a people problem. Um, I've seen the city of London, for instance, where that you know people are cognizant of what value security brings in a reduced police force. With a you know you've got a limited city of london police assets in terms of people focused on economic crime and other things uh, that are more hidden from the public so less public policing but they still manage to get out but they do it in in tandem with the with the private security because the private security within city centers probably tends to be slightly better because of the collaboration and respect they get from police they also pay a higher rate so they get a better quality candidate in the first place but take it out into um, rural areas away from where the security companies are are less engaged with the police or the the bobbies are less inclined to give any respect or they have um, a perception and there's and their own personal biases about security then they're less willing to engage and and that has to be broken down I think that's where the the, the community uh, safety and security um, officers the CSAS accreditation scheme has got to become a, a bigger priority, and but that's got to be driven by the police. I think the National Business Crime Centre does uh, a lot with that, but it could be much bigger, like nationally, uh, a lot bigger. And when you start seeing security officers with police officers, that raises the respect and recognition of security officers, because if the public see police with a security officer, then the, the public think, well, if, if that security officer is good enough for that police officer, then I will I will have the same opinion. And you change opinions in that way. So that's a collaborative working is a is a people problem, not not something that the act can can rectify. <laughs> I was look, look, looking to see what your hopes are for your new role with uh, with Optimal Risk Group. I'm I'm looking forward to this is a this is a consultancy that has um, three three arms. Um, the the middle arm being the consultancy, which I'm very familiar with, but working with government uh, and private clients and corporate sector is is in my sweet spot the other areas of technical uh, surveillance and training in those sort of um, darker arts are, are somewhere i'm not used to so it's giving me a challenge and i'm motivated by knowledge so learning about physical penetration testing surveillance uh, and then the technical surveillance aspects that are, are driven through those other departments are you know i'm, I'm excited to learn those new skills because my background is close protection obviously so that's yes. um, that's something I will develop. But the business is already very mature. 
which means going in to work with somebody like uh, Mike O'Neill and, and Dean Wormleton and Jackie Davis, these are these are people that are very well regarded, very, very capable people. And, you know, if I can add value and bring my my experience of, of building this business, the Institute, to supplement what they've done with their business, then there's a lot of potential for growth. You know, I'm I'm a security professional, chartered security professional, but I'm also an, an experienced business builder. Uh, I know what it what it takes to build the people and build the the financial business, taking risks. You know, there there's a lot that I think um, I can add value with, and that's what I, I'm excited to get involved with. But but with a business that I think reflects my own personal um ethics and my and my my own integrity i see it reflected in optimal risk group and that's what really attracted me to go there returning to the latest news now and a new skills board has been launched by the security industry authority and the city security council in order to address the need for higher standards of professionalism in the private security industry the Skills Board will comprise senior leaders and security professionals from across the industry. Together, they will agree on strategic priorities and commit to deliver what's hoped to be transformational change in support of all those working in the sector. The Board is chaired by Jason Towles, the Managing Director of Business Services at Mighty, while the Vice Chair is Gemma Quirk, Chief Operating Officer of Wilson James. Management and administration duties will be conducted jointly by the SIA and the City Security Council. Jason Towles commented, For some time now, the need to address the level of skills and competencies has been a common theme discussed throughout the industry. We need to change perceptions about the quality and standard of the service we provide, and particularly so if we wish to attract high-caliber people and demonstrate the long-term futures that exist within the industry. Towers continued, with improved continuous learning and professional development structures in place, we will not only show the added value of security businesses, but we will confidently and consistently deliver security at a higher level. I firmly believe the industry must drive change from within, and we can only do this effectively if we collaborate and all agree on how best to set the future direction of travel. In addition, Towers observed, we want to hear as many views as possible from across the private security industry in order to help us agree the best course of action. As a skills board that collectively represents the voice of the industry, we will be strongly placed to influence government to gain support and funding for skills progression within the sector. Steve McCormick, the SIA's Director of Licensing and Standards, stated, This is a tremendous opportunity for the private security industry. It's exciting to see senior leaders joining the skills board and investing their resources in driving skills development as part of professionalising the industry. McCormick went on to comment, The skills board will help to progress the industry's capability, capacity and excellence for competency. We will be working with the Skills Board to support a strategic approach to skills progression. This will strengthen the contribution the industry makes to protecting the public and enhancing community safety. It's also going to increase the ability of the industry's employers to attract, develop and then retain members of staff and further professionalise private security as a discipline. Further, McCormick observed, in order to discharge our regulatory responsibility and assist the industry to achieve higher standards, we need new ways of working with the sector to help bring about change and improvements. The Skills Board is a way of achieving that aim. Members of the new skills board are due to meet on a quarterly basis. They will lead on initiatives designed to enhance the private security industry, set new skills-related criteria, and also ensure that the industry has a voice. Other members of the skills board are Sarah Cork from Bidvest Noonan, Alastair Sutherland of the British Transport Police and the National Police Chiefs Council's lead on the private security industry, Adrian White representing Carlisle Support Services, Tracy Plant of CIS Security, Paul Lotter from Core Security, Patrick Holdaway of the National Business Crime Centre, Sean Kennedy from Securitas, David Scott, the Managing Director at Skills for Security, and also Stuart Kedward from Universal Security.
CFAS, the UK's Fraud Prevention Service, has released its annual Fraudscape report detailing the latest data and intelligence recorded by CFAS members during 2021. The document highlights that, on average, a new case of fraudulent conduct was filed by organisations every 90 seconds, with over 360,000 cases recorded to the National Fraud Database. That's an increase of 16% on 2020. As a result, CFAS members saved around £1.3 billion through prevented fraud losses in 2021. Cases involving identity fraud increased by nearly a quarter in 2021 when compared to the previous year, with over 226,000 cases recorded to the National Fraud Database. Banking and plastic cars were hit hardest by criminals abusing stolen details to apply for products and services. Fraudsters also focused their attentions on loan products, which saw a 39% increase in fraudulent activity. These products are likely to continue to be targeted as a response to the rise in living costs. One-fifth of cases recorded to the National Fraud Database in 2021 relate to the misuse of facilities, which has grown by 17% to over 79,000 cases. A large number of misused cases related to bank accounts, with nearly three-quarters showing behaviours indicative of money mule activity. This increased by nearly a quarter to over 50,000 cases. Of these cases, a large number of those involved, circa 32% in fact, were aged from 21 to 30 years old. The majority of the remaining cases filed to the National Fraud Database were recorded for facilities takeover fraud, with 37,000 instances occurring. Criminals focused their efforts on gaining access to existing accounts, particularly so in relation to online retail and telecoms products. 2021 also witnessed a shift towards gaining access to existing plastic card accounts, which rose by nearly a fifth, i.e. 19%. Nearly 270 cases involving employee or job applicant fraud were filed to the Internal Fraud Database in 2021. Two out of every five of these were in relation to dishonest actions by staff, such as by way of stealing cash or equipment from their employer. There was also a 10% growth in unsuccessful attempts made by job applicants who had lied on their application, with most of these individuals attempting to cover up adverse credits or employment histories. Mike Haley, the CEO of CFAS, explained, Our latest figures show that businesses and consumers are currently facing a tsunami of fraud. Unfortunately, I think matters may worsen before they become better. The predicted rise in the cost of living will give criminals new opportunities to commit fraud, while I expect that consumers will be bombarded by increasingly sophisticated phishing attempts, including fake job offers, money making opportunities and offers that are simply too good to be true. Haley continued, businesses will also find themselves under greater attack from fraudulent activity, with criminals increasingly looking for vulnerabilities in systems and processes alike. On average, an attempt at identity fraud is made every two and a half minutes against businesses. Sadly, when these attempts are successful, criminals can go on to use the proceeds of their work to commit other criminal offences and even finance terrorist activity. Amber Burridge, head of fraud intelligence at CFAS, noted, members of the public are at more risk than ever of falling victim to fraud and scams. It's vitally important that they take proactive steps to protect themselves by thinking carefully when receiving an unsolicited call or an email asking them for money or their financial details. Burridge also observed, anyone who believes that they're being targeted by fraudsters or has been a victim of fraud must report it to Action Fraud and tell their bank immediately if they have supplied money or their financial details. Scam calls and texts can be reported to 7726 and emails should be sent to report at phishing.gov.uk. As a result of individuals using these reporting channels, the National Cyber Security Centre has removed over 76,000 scams across 139,000 URLs since April 2020, duly demonstrating the very real and positive impact that reporting of this kind of activity can deliver. Our second guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Rob Williams, Technical and Training Manager at GateSafe, the charity that's wholly committed to promoting an improved understanding of the legislation and standards pertaining to automated gates. Rob joined the team back in 2018. 
Prior to that, he spent 15 years in the gate automation sector. His last role as an automation workshop supervisor required him to train engineers on automated gate products, oversee new product evolution for the company, and also manage a dedicated technical support line. Rob brings extensive practical knowledge of the automated gate industry to GateSafe, which then enables him to identify with the issues faced by installers in the field. He spends much of his time delivering the IOSH-approved GateSafe Aware training and undertaking independent risk assessments and site surveys. In our interview, Rob examines the process of traditional fire and security system installers taking on automated gate-based work, and also outlines some of the pitfalls that can be encountered. Why do you believe traditional fire and security installers are attracted to diversifying their business to include automated gate installation and maintenance, Rob? Well, I think mainly it's because automation actually is a very fast growing marketplace. Every year, thousands of systems are actually put into operation. And of course, they require maintenance following on from that. So obviously, it's a really profitable business to get in that can increase your revenue stream. And of course, uh, give you more strings to your bow as far as, um, you know, client basis is concerned. So they can have a single point of source for their whole security needs. And how many of these types of installers do you see undertaking the gate safe training course and or refresher courses? Well, again, because of the reasons of the massive increase in the industry, we're actually about, I would say, about 50% of the people that we're training are actually not directly from the gate industry. I think as well, this is partly due to the improved awareness of the dangers around power gates uh, because of what we're doing at GateSafe. I'm actually getting it out there so people will understand the requirements for safe gates. So they're actually coming into the training to get the knowledge before starting on their ventures. So approximately 50% of our uh, trainees are actually outside of the business. And how does the type of work undertaken in the fire and security alarm sector differ to that conducted in the realms of automated gates, Rob? Okay, well, obviously, there's a lot of common ground between alarm systems, CCTV, and of course, gates, with the wiring, switching aspects, logic, and to some extent, some of the similar technologies. But the main difference is that a gate or a barrier actually is a machine, it's a physical item. So as well as just the electronic control, we have the structures to worry about as well. I do find that obviously, um, skill sets can be very varied between these industries and quite honestly I think that gates are very different to that of alarms and and CCTV for example. And what if any concerns would you have regarding fire and security system installers extending their services to the automated gate sector? Okay, again, I think this leads back because we're dealing with machinery. Now, not only do you have to be involved in the wiring side of things, but it could be right down to having to carry out groundworks with ducting and, of course, installation of the structures themselves as well. So you're going to need a lot of different skill sets, such as welding and actually being able to work out the geometry of gates as well. What are the common pitfalls they're most likely to encounter and with what potential consequences do you feel? Basically, I think the main one is not actually being aware of the many risks around the machines that we're talking about and not understanding the requirement for carrying out a proper risk assessment before undertaking works. And of course, making sure that a safe gate is left in operation. 
The consequences of not actually being able to spot the risks around the gate system could lead to an unsafe gate being left in operation, of course, which could lead to an accident and then potential litigation or prosecution even. And lastly, Rob, what advice would you give to those operating in the fire and security sectors who want to become an automated gate installer? Okay, I think that's quite a simple one, really, which is to make sure that you know what you're doing. Uh, Don't ignore the risks around systems. If you think something is dangerous around a gate system, don't just accept that because it's in existence, everything's okay. Do your own risk assessment. And if something is dangerous, get rid of that risk. So importantly, I think it is important to get trained to this fact so that you're confident that the gates that you're dealing with actually are left safe to be in service. Of course, as a final note, I'd like to say that obviously at GateSafe, we are here to try and give as much helpful advice as possible. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Rick Mountfield of the Security Institute and Optimal Risk, and also Rob Williams from GateSafe for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 25th, 26th and 27th of April 2023. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymattersmagazine.com where you can access all of our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters and access our LinkedIn page at Security Matters Magazine and website. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.